Leviticus 10, beginning in verse 1. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective firepans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. Moses called also to Mishael and Elsaphan, the sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and said to them, come forward, carry your relatives away from the front of the sanctuary to the outside of the camp. And so they came forward and they carried them still in their tunics to the outside of the camp, as Moses had said. And then Moses said to Aaron and to his sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, do not uncover your heads, nor tear your clothes so that you will not die and that he will not uh, become wrathful against all the congregation. But your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, shall bewail the burning which the Lord has brought about. You shall not even go out from the doorway of the tent of meeting or you will die for the Lord's anointing oil is upon you. And so they did according to the word of Moses. And the Lord then spoke to Aaron, saying, do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you when you come into the tent of meeting so that you will not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations. And so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane and between the unclean and the clean. And so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. Then Moses spoke to Aaron and his surviving sons, Eleazar and Ithamar. Take the grain offering that is left over from the Lord's offering by fire and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. And you shall eat it moreover in a holy place because it is your due and your sons due out of the Lord's offerings uh, by fire. For thus I, I have been commanded. The breast of the wave offering, however, and the thigh of the offering, you may eat it in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you. For you have been given uh, for they have been given as your due. And your sons do out of the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the sons of Israel. The thigh offered by lifting up and the breast offered by waving. They shall bring along with the offerings by fire of the portions of fat to present as a wave offering before the Lord. And so it shall uh, so it shall be a thing perpetually do you and your sons with you just as the Lord has commanded. But Moses searched carefully for the goat of the sin offering and behold, it had been burned up. So he was angry with Aaron's surviving sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, saying, Why did you not eat the sin offering at the holy place? For it is most holy, and he gave it to you to bear away the guilt of the congregation, to make atonement for them before the Lord. Behold, since its blood had not been brought inside into the sanctuary, you should certainly have eaten it in the sanctuary just as I commanded. But Aaron spoke to Moses, Behold, this very day they presented their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord. And when things like these happened to me, if I had eaten a sin offering today, would it have been good in the sight of the Lord? And when Moses heard that, it seemed good in his sight. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Father, thank you so much for its truth. Father, thank you so much for the kindness that you have given to us to demonstrate yourself, that we might know you and we might make you known that we might understand what you expect of us as your people and those who've been made in your image and remade into your image properly by the work of Christ. Father, this morning, as we evaluate this this narrative story, 
of this first early worship service based on the Levitical law and the seriousness that you call when people approach you. Father, may we examine ourselves. May we examine our approach to you through Christ. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, a very difficult passage of Scripture. Not difficult in necessarily understanding what's going on, but difficult in its content. If you were able to be with us last time, you'll remember that God himself had fire come out from before his presence to consume the burnt offering that was on the altar. God himself throwing his wrath down on the sacrifice rather than on the people. God himself consuming that which was offered. And and we see that displayed in chapter 9. Here, there's another fire from the Lord that consumes. And so this narrative continues. So we had that first offering that had happened. We don't know if a lot of time has gone by. The indication seems to be that it was all sort of while all these things were happening in that moment. And this is the very first record that we have after the initial burnt offering. And it's a failure to comply with God's standards of worship. Now remember, and we're, we're going we're gonna to touch on this, but I want you to remember the death penalty passages that we saw were regarding the priest and propriety of worship. There's other death penalty passages that come along the way, but the ones that we find here initially in Leviticus were directed at the priest, and it was about propriety of worship. When you come to make these offerings, if you don't do this, or if you do it that way, or if you forget to do it like this, then these people shall be cut off from among the congregation. The idea of the death penalty. And it had to do with rightly worshiping the Lord. Now, I don't want us to get too far ahead of ourselves because we will dive into this in a moment. But I really want everyone to just pause for a moment and think. Has there ever really been a time in your life where you showed up to corporate worship and in the midst of that corporate worship paused long enough to say, man, if we don't get this right, God might kill us. The uncomfortable laugh that just murmured its way through the congregation indicates that for most of us, the answer to that question is no. I've, I've never really shown up to a corporate worship service and go, wow, if we, if we blow this, we might die. God might actually just kill us if we don't do this right. The law, before they had their first worship service in this way, God said, hey, listen. If some guys get this wrong, they need to die. And then the very first time they do it, some guys get it wrong. And notice who kills them. God himself. Almost putting the exclamation point on the law he'd just given. I told you if you get it wrong, they need to be cut off from their people. Let me show you what I mean. There's still offerings on some of the tables that haven't been burnt up yet. You're like, man, this is heavy. Yes, 
This is heavy. So let's file that away as we keep walking through this. So there's a couple of things that I want to note about what happened with Nadab and Abihu and this strange fire of incense that they offered to the Lord that caused them to be consumed by a fire from before the Lord that they died in the presence of the Lord and of their father Aaron. First, some things to note about Nadab and Abihu. First, we do not know the attitude or condition of the heart of Nadab and Abihu. There's no commentary here in Leviticus about that. All it says is they offered strange fire. It doesn't say that they were remembering, you know, uh, gods that they'd heard about from Egypt. It doesn't say that they picked up some sort of false notion of worship along the way. It doesn't say anything about a theological controversy that they may, may have been having. It doesn't say anything about pride or arrogance or ego on their part. It just says that they mixed up some incense that was not appropriate and offered it in their fire pan before the Lord and the Lord killed them. We don't know anything about their attitude or their condition of their heart. It'd be really easy for us to say, well, you know, clearly there was something wrong with Nadab and Abihu and the way that they worship God and their attitude and their heart condition toward him and they were being idolatrous or they were hiding some great sin or what we don't know any of that we'd have to make a lot of assumptions that the scripture just doesn't give us for all we know we don't know if it was inappropriate this inappropriate offering was intentional or if it was accidental there's a lot of laws already like there's a lot of stuff going on go back and read Leviticus 1 through 7. There's a lot of stuff that they've got to know and they've got to remember and that they've got to do. And they just saw a fireball fall out of heaven and burn up the thing that was already on fire in front of them. A little unnerving. I could totally see in a moment like that, them reaching over and grabbing a hold of something they weren't supposed to grab hold of and throwing, I got to do this thing. And it was totally the wrong thing. Like they just got it wrong. No ill will. They just messed up. We don't know. Nothing says if it was intentional or accidental. What we do know is that they did it wrong. That's what we know. That's all we know. All that we know is that they did it incorrectly. That's it. It would be a lot easier pill to swallow if we had some explanation of, well, you know, they were really remembering Baal or some Egyptian god or, you know, they somewhere along the way they become enamored with Molech or, you know, whatever. Like, it'd be a whole lot easier pill to swallow. It's like, hey, God will never know. We're just going to do a little thing over here from Molech. Like, it'd be really easy for us in that moment to go, oh, well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're worshiping a false god. Sure, okay. We have no clue at all what happened here. If it was on purpose if it was accidental, if they had something in their heart that was wayward, if it was, as we like to call it in the good old United States, an honest mistake. We don't know. We have no idea. No clue. What we do know is, is they did something incorrectly in the worship of God. And God himself fulfilled the command to cut them off from among the people. That's all we know. Now, I want to show you something that's even more stressful than that. 
when these two sons of Aaron die at, at the work of God himself for their inappropriate act of worship, Moses gives an injunction not to mourn the loss in a traditional way. He immediately turns his attention to Aaron and to Aaron's other two sons and says, in essence, do not mourn them or their death. Don't even leave the tent of meeting. You still have the anointing oil of God on you. Do not tear your clothes. Do not cover your head. Don't do any of the things that would normally happen when someone very near and dear to you dies and you're appropriately mourning their loss. Don't do any of that stuff. The entire congregation is going to grieve the burning that has happened, meaning God judging the people, judging those two priests. But we will not mourn their deaths. Ouch. So you've got God himself striking these two men down in front of their father, the high priest Aaron. Who has just offered all of the first great sacrifices of worship to the Lord under this new Levitical system. And then they do an inappropriate act of worship and die in front of their father at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses, the great lawgiver, turns his attention to their father and says, don't cry for them. Friends, this is one of the heaviest stories in all of the Bible. And sadly, and I know we've made jokes about it along the way, but sadly, most people miss this story because when they start reading Leviticus, the first seven chapters are really hard to get through. They just are all the. You know, the blood and the sacrifices and the offerings and what it stands for and what it doesn't stand, how you're supposed to do it. And it just, we kind of get a little cross-eyed in the, in the heaviness of all of that. And we just, all right, I'm not going to read Leviticus. And we miss this incredibly tense, profound story. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this story? Well, there's two key considerations, two passages from Leviticus 10 that really stand out and kind of point us in a, in a direction of understanding. First, Leviticus 10, 8 through 11. So I want us to see this. After this event occurs and after God uh, uh, commands Aaron not to mourn the death of his sons. When you get to verse 8. The Lord then spoke. To Aaron. Now, I want to pause here. And I don't want to overdo this. But I want you to know. This is the only time in the book of Leviticus that the Lord speaks directly to Aaron instead of speaking to Moses and having Moses speak to Aaron. Everywhere else, the Lord speaks to Moses. Everywhere else. This is the only place that God speaks directly to Aaron. And if you remember in the Exodus, that's how it worked. Remember Moses' complaint. You remember Moses' great concern about him being the one to deliver the people. What does he say to God? He says, I'm not a man of good speech. The implication being that Moses may have had some version of a speech impediment, possibly. 
not good with words, not capable of speaking well. And so God then recommends, your brother Aaron speaks great. I'll talk to you. You tell Aaron what to say and Aaron will speak on your behalf. And that's how the setup's been ever since. God speaks to Moses. That's who he talks to. When he gets ready to give the initial law in the Exodus and he tells him how the tabernacle is going to be built and he gives him the two commands, a tablet, and he comes down and he sees them worshiping the golden calf and he crushes them against the rocks. Who goes up to the mountaintop to speak with God? Moses does. Here in the book of Leviticus, the only time that the Lord directly speaks to Aaron. Now, again, I don't want to overdo this. But I think it's really significant that this is when and how it happens. The only time God speaks directly to Aaron is right after God himself killed Aaron's two oldest sons. If you can't already begin to piece together how important that might be. Because Moses, the lawgiver, said, don't mourn your kid's death. And right after that, God speaks himself to Aaron. I'd like to consider this as a demonstration of God's gracious kindness to Aaron. Aaron, I want to say something to you. So that you know that I still have a loving concern for you. Now, what he says to them is incredibly intriguing. These are not the words of comfort I would normally offer someone whose children have just died. And though I've never engaged in this sort of activity, I would like to think I really wouldn't say these words to someone if their children had just died and I was the one responsible for their children's death. But God is strange and mysterious and his wisdom is far beyond ours. And so this is what he says to Aaron. Do not drink wine or strong drink. Neither you nor your sons with you when you come into the tent of meeting so that you will not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout the generations. And so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane and between the unclean and the clean. And so to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord spoke to them through Moses. This is God's great word to Aaron. The only time that he talks to him right after he kills his two sons at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Don't drink wine and strong drink when you're inside the temple, uh, tabernacle area. Don't do that. Uh, Okay. Seems like a weird encouragement. I know you're sad that your kids are dead. Let's talk about boozing it up. Seems kind of weird. Now. There's some reasons why this may be the message. You could make an inference, though this is weak, but you could make an inference that perhaps maybe just maybe Nadab and Abihu to take the edge off of this crazy thing that they're about to do with this first worship service, maybe participated a little in the wine and the strong drink. And they were clouded in their thought process a little bit because of that. And when they went to go grab the incense, they got the wrong stuff because they were just a little not quite right. You know how that wine and strong drink does to you. If you don't, don't find out. And if you remember from a long time ago, don't reacquaint yourself with it. Because there's a reason the New Testament warns off drunkenness, because it makes you do crazy things. 
when you're no longer in control of yourself, something else is in control of you, usually bad things happen. There could be an inference here that maybe that's what was going on. Maybe the reason God's saying this to Aaron is like, dude, your kids came into the tabernacle drunk and that's why they did this crazy thing. Please don't do that again. There could be that. But you know what? That would be a stretch and be overdone because the scripture doesn't really say that to us. It doesn't. So what can we glean from these words that God gave to Aaron? Well, he says that he wants to make a distinction between the profane and the holy. Nowhere, hear me, I know this sounds really weird coming from a Southern Baptist pulpit, and some of you will bother you greatly, but I'll just issue the challenge to you. Nowhere in the scripture does it claim that alcohol or its consumption is a sinful thing. doesn't. It just doesn't. I mean, it just doesn't. Now, does it say that alcohol can be a dangerous thing? Sure, it does. Absolutely, it does. You know what else says in the scripture can be dangerous things? Money. Never seen anybody abstain from money, really. But it warns off the great dangers of money. You know what else it says in the scripture is dangerous? Sexuality. Sexuality can be a very dangerous thing. I have seen some people warn off that, live a celibate life. Usually the same ones who claim that they're you know, not following the path of money either. They're called monks. You know? Monastic lifestyle is probably not best for everybody. You know what else the scripture says is incredibly dangerous, super dangerous? Pride. Pride's incredibly dangerous. You know what else the scripture says is really dangerous? Food and gluttony of it. You know what drunkenness is? It's the gluttony of strong drink. It's the same thing as overeating food. It's just you're doing it with something else. Yeah, but nobody's ever died overeating, have they not? <laughs> Number one killer in the United States. Dave, heart disease based off of obesity because we eat too much. There's a lot of stuff the Bible gives warnings about as being incredibly dangerous, but the thing itself is not sinful. It's what you do with the thing that makes it sinful. Usually overindulgence of the thing. And so hear me, when God says this to Nadab and Abihu, he's not making some sort of, because I've heard guys actually come to this Leviticus passage and be like, and this is why you should never ever drink anything ever in your whole entire life, because alcohol is bad and sinful. And then Jesus goes straight up into the first miracle, turns water into wine. But that's grape juice. Yeah, no, it wasn't. It just wasn't. I had a remarkable conversation with my Greek professor about this a million years ago when I was in seminary. I said, how do you get that word wine to be grape juice in the New Testament? And he just admitted it it really shouldn't be. It's tradition. That's what it is. But it's one that I like. And he gave all these reasons why he wants to keep his tradition. So you're not going to find the consumption of alcohol as a sin anywhere in the Bible. You're not. But what you will find is a lot of warnings about how dangerous it can be if you consume it incorrectly. A lot of warnings about that. This being one of the first ones. 
God himself making a declaration. Hey, I want to keep a distinction between that which is holy and that which is profane. And if you're going to come into the tabernacle area and you're going to offer sacrifices for the people and you're going to help them worship God, you had better come in and do it with a clear head and not be hammered while you're doing it. You know what? That seems like incredibly great advice. I can go ahead and testify to you with a clear conscience this morning. I've never preached a sermon hammered. I just want to throw that out there. Now, I know a couple of guys who have. We laugh it off, but I know some guys who in pastoral ministries have struggled severely with addictions. Whether it's alcohol or drugs or whatever else it may be. And the grip of this on their life would bleed over into the worship setting from time to time. You say, well, that's terrible. Yeah, it is. And look at God being gracious, saying, hey, look, (laughs) this is not the best way. Because you know what? You're not demonstrating that which is holy when your life is controlled by an outside source, an outside substance. You're just not. You're living under that which is profane. And God said, I don't want you to die while you're doing this. Because regardless of why you mess up, if you mess up, it's the death penalty. And so this is what God says to Aaron. Friends, hear me. The larger point of all of that is this. Clarity of thought is important in corporate worship. That's the point that God is trying to make with this injunction. When you hear me, when you engage in corporate worship, you must do so with clarity of thought. Now, let me meddle for just a second. Let me, as an old guy used to say, let me go from preaching to meddling just for a minute. God's being very particular here about the use of strong drink and wine because it definitely can cloud up the clarity of thought for sure very easily. You know what else can cloud up the clarity of thought very quickly? Hyper-emotionalism. When I come to worship, I just want to get a feeling. And if I don't get that feeling, I'm going to go find somewhere else where I can get that feeling and worship. And suddenly feeling becomes your strong drink and your wine. I don't really care what they're saying. I just want to know that what we're doing is moving me into the presence of God. You say, Philip, you're being mocking. I am. Yeah. Because I really don't want God to throw any fire down out of heaven on anybody in this room today because they came in here without clarity of thought. Because corporate worship isn't about how you feel. We're going to get to that more particularly at the end of the sermon. But just file that away. Corporate worship is not about a feeling. It's not even we're close to that. God, hey, listen, I, this isn't entirely true if I were to flesh it out. But when it comes to corporate worship, God doesn't care how you feel. Because corporate worship isn't about you. We're not worshiping you today. I, I didn't really enjoy worship today. Who cares? We weren't worshiping you. You think they enjoyed killing all these animals, bleeding them out and throwing blood all over everything and smelling the smell of entrails on fire? You think everybody, oh, that was great worship today. I really love the smell of burning entrails in the morning. You think that's how they walked away from this worship setting? Absolutely not. They were, un- God is unconcerned about how you feel when you walk away from his altar. 
Because you don't come to the altar of God about you. You come to the worship of God about Him and His glory. And you cannot do that if you don't have clarity of thought. So God is giving a great warning here. When you enter into my presence for worship, you had better be clear-headed. Doctrine matters. Second big picture thing that we want to see from this text of why this narrative makes a difference. Skip down to verse 16. 16 through the end of the chapter. But Moses, now remember the B team is in. Eleazar and Ithamar have replaced Nadab and Abihu because Nadab and Abihu are dead and we still have to finish this worship service. And you want to talk about like commitment to finishing the corporate worship service. You know, a lot of times we'll cancel out. I still remember, and I'm so glad that Sylvania is this way. Mid-service, we had power out. It's just, the whole thing just shut down. And a lot of people have just gone home. Nope, we pulled out the flashlights. I went and stood in the middle where I could try to project my voice and everybody could hear me. Two dudes stood over me and shined the thing on the Bible where I could see it and read it. It was awesome. We didn't shut it down. This is kind of hardcore though. God just killed two of the priests. They had three priests. They had Aaron and his two sons, Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu are gone. Hey, we got to sub in your other two kids because we got to finish this thing out. Do not cry for them. We got a worship service to finish. What? Hey, the kids of their uncle, come drag these bodies away so they're not contaminating the scene. We got to finish this worship set. Wow. Okay. So the B team is in. All right. When we get to Leviticus 10, the B team is in. Leviticus 10, 16. It says, but Moses searched carefully for the goat of the sin offering and behold, it had been burned up. So he became angry with Aaron's surviving sons. And he asked them a series of questions. Why didn't you eat it? It's a holy thing. It's supposed to bear away the guilt of a congregation, make atonement for their sins. Blood hasn't even been brought in. You certainly should have eaten it, all that kind of thing. And then Aaron gives a response. He says, behold, this very day. Listen, this is how I know all of this is happening in one moment. There's not a break here in the timeline. This very day, they presented their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord. When things like these happen to me, I just watched God kill my two oldest kids in the middle of a worship service because they messed up the offering. That, by the way, is the very understated when things like this happen to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would that have really been good in the sight of the Lord? And Moses said, you know, that seems good. That seems right. So the B team is in and the B team is already making mistakes in the worship service. They're not doing the offering right either. We have the very first worship service ever done according to the Levitical law, and they've already messed it up twice. Eleazar and Ithamar have not appropriately consumed the goat of the sin offering, nor have they properly brought in its blood into the tabernacle area. And so Aaron points to the uncertainty regarding the events that had preceded this. Hey, you know, this is a little different. 
There's no law about what do we do when one of the priests gets killed on site mid-service. Like, we, we, don't, we don't have that. I wasn't real sure what my next step should be. Of all the particulars that are covered through Exodus and the first part of Leviticus, we didn't cover death on site of a priest. I wasn't real sure what I was supposed to do. You know what? That's actually a pretty good response. We don't know if this was fear on Aaron's part. We don't know if it was doubt. We don't know if it was grief. We don't know if it was some combination of these. But what we do know is that Aaron seemed genuinely uncertain as to the correct course of action after what had just happened. He was not sure what they were supposed to be doing in this moment. Now, I'm going to make a hard shift here. Because I want the weight of the scene to stay on everyone's mind as we begin talking about new covenant worship. The laws are deep and rich and complex. The first three injunctions for capital punishment are against priests and people who violate priestly things during or in preparation for worship. At the very first worship service, two of the priests do not do the worship Actions in the correct way and God himself kills them and then brings in two substitute priests and they also do not do what they're supposed to do. And we're bordering on this happening again, except for a conversation that's had between Aaron and Moses that keeps that from occurring. This is the first worship service, by the way, any church growth people will tell you that this is not the way that you want your first service to start when you launch your new church. So, hey, man, I, I, you guys have been working toward this for a long time. You know, how how'd that first uh, worship service go? Well, you know, two of the guys that were leading it were killed by God on the site. We drug their bodies out. And then the other two guys almost died because they messed up just like they did. Wow, what a great first day of worship. No, see, that's not how you want to. No, nobody's going to write books about that. You're not going to invite it to conferences to speak about that. You know, how to shrink your congregation through God's judgmental death in three parts. Like, that's not. Nobody's going to do that. But that's the first day. That's the very first one. That's weighty. Like that's weighty. And can you imagine just being a regular guy in the congregation out there seeing the fire fall from heaven, seeing Nadab and Abihu's bodies dragged out, seeing that these other guys are going in and like, I, I, I can't even begin to process what's going through the minds of the people who are watching this happen, who aren't part of the priesthood. You know, a lot of times we give the nation of Israel a real rough time about complaining and murmuring and wanting to go back to Egypt. I might want to go back to Egypt after this. Because the only time God like sent like fire out of heaven and stuff while I was in Egypt was against my enemies, not against us. This is really different. And so I want to make a shift to Jesus as our source and object of worship. I want you this morning to consider the greatness of the new covenant worship system to the sacrificial system that we see here in Leviticus. First, there is no need for a go-between. Part of the reason why the priests were doing what they were doing is that the people needed a go-between. They needed a mediator. They needed a priest To talk to God on their behalf and to sacrifice things to God on their behalf. We do not need that. Hear me this morning, friends. Hear me this morning. All are welcome in the presence of the Lord through the work of Jesus Christ. You don't need to go between. It doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor. It doesn't matter what sins you struggle with. 
It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter what your gender is. You, through Christ, are welcome. The veil has been torn. I don't have to rely on this priest getting it right for me to be able to have access to God Almighty through Jesus. Why? Because the priest, Jesus Christ, has gotten it right. He didn't mess it up. Second, this greatness of new covenant worship. There are no sacrifices, incense to burn, offerings to give, peace offerings to bring, drink offerings to pour out. There is none of that to keep straight. Christ Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. When I come into the presence of the Lord through the work of Jesus Christ, I don't have to bring anything and I don't have to serve it up any particular way. I can come to him Empty handed. Which is wonderful. Because what am I going to give him? That would make me worthy. Nothing. The beautiful thing about new covenant worship. Is that in the gospel. The only thing that I'm required to bring. Is the sin that Christ will forgive. And I have no trouble doing that. Because it's always with me. Everywhere I go. Third. As we prayed this morning. All that God requires of us in new covenant worship is a broken and contrite spirit. That's it. A person that grieves over their sinful condition. That's it. It's all he requires of us. Broken heart. However, however, there are aspects of new covenant worship that are to be taken seriously. And I want to touch on two of them this morning as we get ready to close. First, and this is sort of new. They say there's nothing new under the sun. And you can see glimpses of this in the Old Testament. And you can see glimpses of it in some communities in the New Testament. And you've seen it flourish in communities after the close of the New Testament among Christian communities throughout history. Our worship is not a weapon or a bargaining chip. I'm going to let the confusion settle into your minds for just a second. Here's what I mean. We have become so self-focused in the notion of corporate worship that evangelical conservative Christians who otherwise would declare all of the great things that are glorious about our God and about Christ have weaponized corporate worship, and their participation in the life of the larger community of faith. Here's what I mean. Well, you know, they made that decision over there at the church. Maybe if I don't show up for a little while, they'll see how important I was to what was going on over there, and they'll change their minds about that. 
You know, I'm not going to volunteer this next time around. They didn't do it quite the way I wanted them to. And I'm going to see if they can find somebody that can sub in for me. Because, man, I've been doing a lot for them for a long time. And I'm going to be real hard for them to get by without me doing what I've been doing. I may just mosey on down the street to this other church. And that's going to land my life over there. Because I just really like how they were doing stuff at that church right there. Listen, two things in the scripture that lay out reasons to leave a local community once you've covenanted with them. First, unchecked heresy that is not corrected. If heresy is being taught and preached, if I stand up and say to you that Jesus is not God, nobody puts me in check and nobody's going to put me in check, leave. You leave heretical churches, that's what you do. Second, unchecked immorality. It's just crass immorality going on. Everybody knows about it, but nobody's doing anything about it. Leave. That's not a real church. Those are the two reasons listed in the New Testament for a person to disconnect from their covenant relationship with whatever congregation they find themselves involved in. The third one, and it's more by inference than it is by direct command, you move too far away to actually viably be a part of that community. You find another community that's closer to where you live. And that's by inference. Hear me this morning. This is not going to sit well. And I'm actually taking a trip out of town this week, so I won't be able to have lunch with anybody. So I'll just not really care that much about it. That it doesn't sit well with anybody. Because you're not going to be able to talk to me about it. You'll forget about it by the time I get back. If you leave a covenant of faith for pretty much any other reason, you have weaponized your worship. And you've made it about you Rather than about Christ. And you are offering strange fire on your incense pan. That's what you're doing. This is a new thing evangelicals do and they do it all the time. I'm not going to make my participation in the community about Christ and about His glory and about using my gifts to bless the people around me and about sacrificing myself for the benefit of the other. I want to know what you can do for me. And we march all over town finding the little things. Some of them are positive. Some of them are negative. That feed the me mentality. So when I'm single, when we got to have a thriving singles ministry, I can't be there. And you get married and you got to have a thriving young married ministry. I can't be there. And then you have little kids. You better have a thriving ministry for little kids or I can't be there. And then you got teenagers. You better have a thriving ministry for teenagers or I can't be there. And then you're an empty nest. You better have a thriving ministry for empty nesters or I can't be there. And it was all about you. And none of that had anything to do with the Lord. Friends, there's a whole host of ways that people do this. Do not weaponize your worship. That's strange incense that creates a strange fire that is displeasing to the Lord. The second one about not worship, not using our worship as a weapon is that our worship. And this is very serious from the New Testament. New Testament is very serious about this. Our worship should be Christ focused. Christ-focused. The question that you should ask when you come into a corporate worship setting in the New Covenant reality is, how and in what ways can Christ be made much of in my life in this moment? That's it. That's it. 
It goes down to the singing. It goes down to the praying. It goes down to the preaching. It goes down to the celebration of the various ordinances. It goes down to every aspect of corporate worship. And then when you extend it into the corporate life of the community, which is our continuing worship together as we do life with one another, it's about whatever programs that we do, whatever classes that we offer, and whatever sort of uh, development of fellowship and community that we try to create. The question should always be, how can I make much of Jesus in the midst of this In my life, in this moment, it should be Christ-focused. Yeah, but Philip, what about the practical stuff that I'm supposed to get out of it? Friend, as a Christian, there's nothing more practical than you getting more Jesus. I don't mean for it to come off cliche or simple-minded. But friends, the reality of the new covenant is that I am conformed to the image of Christ. That's it. By the way, that's enough. If you think you can do more than that, you're way past I am in this journey of spiritual reality. Because I'm nowhere near reflecting the glory of the image of Christ. What I need in my life, every moment of every day, and I need this community to aid me in, is being more like Jesus. And when we come together in corporate worship, that's what it's supposed to be about. It's supposed to be Christ-focused. So you know what? Maybe we sing a tune that I'm not as familiar with. Is it Christ-focused? If it is, praise God. Maybe we go through a book from the pulpit that I'm just not all that familiar with and sounds kind of weird to my ears. Yes, but is it Christ-focused? Friends, maybe I get put in a small group with a bunch of people I don't really know that well and they're at different stages of life than I am and I'm just not real sure what I'm... Going to get out of this. Yeah, but is that group Christ focused? That's what corporate worship is about. And the scripture makes it very clear. And I mentioned this earlier and I'll close with this. Corporate worship is not a confirmation of your feelings, but a strengthening of your faith in Christ. And that's why I said earlier, God does not care how you feel when you leave a corporate worship setting. What God cares about is, has your faith in Christ been strengthened by the means of grace that is corporate worship? That's the difference. Corporate worship is not about an experience to be had, but rather a lifestyle to be cultivated. And I know what people mean when they say this, but let us correct our speech on this. Let us correct our speech on this. This is shown in no greater way than when people leave a corporate worship service and they say, Wasn't worship great today? Somewhere in there we messed something up. Because worship's not great, Jesus is. And if worship had really been what worship should have been, then I would have left and said, isn't Jesus great? There's a story that's told about Spurgeon and another popular preacher who was alive at the same time. And some people had gone over 
to hear these two men preach. And they went and heard the first man, not Spurgeon, in the morning. And they were going to hear Spurgeon that evening. And when they left listening to the first unnamed preacher, they left saying, isn't so-and-so a great preacher? And they were just enamored with his ability to speak well and to preach well. And then that night they went and listened to Spurgeon preach. And when they left, they said, isn't that Jesus he preached about great? Friends, corporate worship in the new covenant reality. If you want to offer strange fire to the Lord in a modern setting, then let it be about how you feel. Let it be about the experience you think you're going to have. Let it be self-focused. Let it be about. Let it be about you being able to be enamored with the experience of it all. And the lights and the sounds and the smell and the overall sense of emotional well-being that it might give you. That's strange fire. If you want to experience new covenant worship rightly, then let it all be about Christ. Let it all be about the majesty and the splendor of the name of Jesus. No matter how it makes me feel when I'm done. Now, how much I enjoyed the experience, because friends, I'm going to tell you straight this morning. Even as a believer, even as one who has the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, there will be times you will come into the presence of the living Christ and you won't walk away clicking your heels, skipping through fields of daisies, thinking everything is just right and wonderful because the overwhelming glory of his holiness will expose something about your lowly condition and you will come to realize there's still some idol you're holding to that you must cast down at his feet. And friends, that's not always pleasant. Just like it wasn't always pleasant when they set those animals on fire. And it wasn't always pleasant when they threw the blood against the altar. And it wasn't always pleasant when you heard the noises of those creatures dying. Friends, corporate worship, the right and true worship of God in Christ by way of the Spirit, is not about how you feel. It's all about the glory of Of Christ. He is our only true object and source of right worship. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ is amazing. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the Alpha, the Omega. He's the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. He is our righteousness. He is the demonstration of your holiness. He is the exact representation of your radiance. He is the display of your beauty and glory. Father, forgive us when we offer strange fire and call it worship. Father, forgive us 
When corporate worship has become about our feelings and our experience or a weapon to be used against others. Father, let us understand the full weight that we have come to gl- together to make much of the glory of Christ. And Father, forgive us when we do not. And we ask it in Jesus name. Amen. I'm